There's an old saying that most of you are probably somewhat familiar with about how to deal with large and difficult issues. That saying is set up by this question, how do you eat an elephant? Say it with me now, one bite at a time. So I have a question for you. Have you ever found yourself upset over a situation or an injustice that needs to change but is just too big or too difficult for you to handle on your own? Where do you start? What steps would you take first? Here at North River, we have been working our way through a series of messages called Living in Exile. We are trying to make the most out of our current COVID-19 exile from our workplaces and our normal lives. And we are looking at examples of people from the Bible who thrived in periods of exile, seeing what we can learn from them and what will transfer to help us at this time. Today we are focusing on a man in exile who became emotionally wrecked over hearing about the broken down state of the city of Jerusalem. And this man was used by God to accomplish a task that people of his day thought was absolutely impossible. So here's the main idea that I want to get across this morning. Those who are broken over injustices are often used by God to right impossible wrongs. We're talking about Nehemiah, and there's a book in the Old Testament scriptures named after him. And so all of this comes from Nehemiah chapter 1. The first thing that we see with Nehemiah is what I would call the brokenness factor. Nehemiah's mission started with a broken heart. Now, Nehemiah lived about 150 years after the Jewish exile to Babylon had begun. The first forced deportation from Jerusalem involved Daniel and his three friends who we looked at a few weeks ago. They didn't have a choice in this as King Nebuchadnezzar from the kingdom of Babylonia forced many thousands of people into exile. Then Cyrus the Mede conquered the Babylonian Empire and he allowed the first wave of Jews to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. The Medo-Persian Empire now took over and it ruled from the borders of India all the way to Egypt. This first wave of returnees from the exile began, began 70 years after Jerusalem was destroyed and this signaled the end of the formal exile period. However, only about 2% of the Jewish people who are in exile in Babylon returned to Jerusalem at that time. Xerxes I was the next emperor or king over the Medo-Persian Empire, and he reigned during the time of Queen Esther, who we talked about last weekend. And his son, Artaxerxes I, followed and was on the throne in the time when we encounter Nehemiah. Artaxerxes would have been the stepson of Queen Esther. He would have been familiar with the work of Mordecai, Esther's uncle, who took on the role of being the second highest ruler in the land of the Medo-Persian Empire, uh, during that time. Discrimination toward the Jews had died out with the death of Haman, so it shouldn't surprise us that some Jews began to travel back and forth between Israel and Jerusalem and the Persian Empire. And again, it shouldn't shock us that Nehemiah worked in the palace as, as cupbearer to the king because of the influence of Esther and Mordecai. And Nehemiah was heartbroken at hearing about the condition of Jerusalem and its people. The second thing we discover about Nehemiah is that he was distressed about broken people. 
Verse 3 of chapter 1 says, They said to me, Those who survived in exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. There were two groups of Jews living in Jerusalem by this time. The first was those who had survived the exile. These were the remnant people who had never left. They had dealt with years of shortages and deprivation. They were constantly in short supply of just about everything. And they were living around the rubble of destruction in Jerusalem. The second group was a different group of people who had come to rebuild the temple. This first wave had been led by a man named Zerubbabel, and it happened around 538 B.C. There's a list of names, actually, in the Bible uh, about who these people are. You'll find it in the second chapter of the book of Ezra. After getting the temple started, yet not completed, this group lost focus, and they got tired, and they started fixing up their own homes. And eventually, some of the minor prophets uh, scolded them and lectured them about the need to finish the work on the temple and that God was displeased. So it's important that we realize that Jews were not the only people in and around Jerusalem. King Nebuchadnezzar had also brought other displaced people groups to Israel while most of the Jews had been brought to Babylon in exile. So when Nehemiah returns, he will also have to deal with opposition from this group of people who do not want to see Jerusalem's walls rebuilt and do not want to see the people protected or growing stronger. Nehemiah, when he heard the news of the condition of the city and of the distress of the people and the disgrace that they were going in, was wrecked over all of this as he thought about Jerusalem. Look at the words that he used here in describing this. Those who survived are in great trouble and disgrace. We will see the cause of this trouble and disgrace in a moment. But the first thing that wrecked Nehemiah's heart was the disgrace experienced by the people of Jerusalem. He hurt for them. When you experience disgrace, that means that other people are mocking your situation or making light of it. And that's exactly what was going on in Jerusalem. Nehemiah couldn't get over the mistreatment and the disgrace of the people and the way that that they and their God were mocked by the enemies of God's people there in the city of Jerusalem. Now, other teachers have written about this kind of emotional experience that happens when somebody gets wrecked by a, a situation that causes internal distress. And they have referred to this as a holy discontent. A holy discontent is when your internal reaction to something that is broken in this world aligns with the heart of God, spurring us to take decisive action in order to effect change. I believe that God stirs up this holy discontent during seasons or moments of injustice in the world. Let me give you an example of that that you're probably aware of. Over the past two weeks, a video showing the shooting of an unarmed black man named Armad Arbery in Brunswick, Georgia, was playing out all across America. That video shows Arbery jogging down the street of his neighborhood and then being confronted by two white men with shotguns and a pickup truck. Arbery was shot and killed in this encounter on February 23rd, and no one had been arrested until after this video was sought out by the Atlantic Constitutional Journal on May 5th and then released. And within hours, the video went viral, and people all across the country were talking about it. I thought on my own, what do I do about something like this? 
I'm far away. I don't know this person. I don't know the, the conditions in Georgia. And then I noticed a friend of mine, Jua Robinson, a, a black pastor in Boston, posted a video of himself and his young daughter running 2.23 miles. The 2.23 has to do with February 23rd in honor of Ahmad Arbery. And then on Friday, another friend of mine, Brian Wilkerson, a white pastor in Lexington, posted a similar video as he was about to go on a run and talked about how he'd never had to worry about running through neighborhoods wherever he's lived, but he was running in honor of Ahmad Arbery. These two men, friends of mine, were broken over this injustice. See, here's what we're talking about this morning. Those who are broken over injustices are often used by God to right wrongs that seem impossible to us. And Nehemiah was not only distressed about broken people, he was also upset over the city's broken walls. Verse 3 says, They said to me, Those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. The walls of the city had been torn down and left in a state of rubble for some 150 years. This made it impossible for the residents of Jerusalem to defend themselves and they were mocked by their enemies who wanted to keep things that way. We know this because Nehemiah would encounter harassment from them. We read about it in Nehemiah chapter 4 and then again in chapter 6. Every so often, God uses things like this to stir up a holy discontent among his people. Think about how he, how he did that with Moses. It was hearing about the misery of God's people that spurred Moses into action. And he was sent by God back to Egypt. It happened again with David. In this case, it was hearing Goliath mock Israel's army and their God that spurred David to pick up his sling. And now it happens with Nehemiah. Here it was hearing about the disgrace of God's people in Jerusalem. Have you ever experienced this kind of holy discontent? Do we ever allow ourselves to experience and feel this kind of God-stirred holy discontent? Again, those who are broken over injustices are often used by God to right the wrongs of this world. Nehemiah had three tools that he began to apply from his spiritual life to this situation. The first was that he continued to serve. We find at the end of chapter 1 that Nehemiah slips in this observation that is so important to the story. He says, I was cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah used his access and track record of serving the king. He artfully saves this revelation for the last line of chapter 1. It, not, it should not surprise us that Jews were serving in the Persian palace. Again, Daniel and his three friends had been highly placed among the Babylonian administrative leaders. And Esther had served as queen of Persia for Artaxerxes, the father of the current king, Xerxes I. During that time, Mordecai had saved Xerxes' life by uncovering an assassination plot. And now we find that Nehemiah was in a role close to Xerxes I, close to the king, as his cupbearer who would taste his wine and bring his wine to him every day, making sure that somebody else had not poisoned the king. Nehemiah is letting us know that his plan would build on those years of service, and he would put all of that at risk. 
Serving others well ought to be one of our primary tools for change in our day too. Think of North River's vision statement. Our vision statement reads this way. People being forever changed by God's love and daily changing the South Shore and beyond for Jesus. Simply put, as we change, things change. As God changes our hearts, then we see other situations in the world that need His touch, that need His hand, that need His power. So we should not be surprised when God puts us in places where we serve in ways that have impact. The second tool that Nehemiah used was prayer, and he committed himself to the role of prayer. Verse 4 says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah embarked on a season of prayer before he did anything else. His prayer was connected to a season of mourning, and his prayer was connected to a season of fasting. We are not told about how long he fasted or what kind of fast that he engaged in. Uh, Was it uh, a full fast of day and night? Was it part of the day? Was it just for the daylight hours? We don't know all these details, but we do know that fasting is the act of turning physical hunger into spiritual focus. Next, notice that his prayer includes five broad themes. Praise, love, confession, redemption, and favor. He started by praising God for God's awesome qualities. And then he reminds the Lord about his love for his people and that he is a God who keeps his covenants. When Nehemiah confesses, he confesses of the sins of his people as a whole, of his own family, and even says that he's engaged in some of that sin against God. And he acknowledges, we have not kept your commands, we have not kept your ways. But then he reminds the Lord of his commitment to the broad theme of redemption. And he recalls the Lord's commitment to redeeming his people. He saved them out of great distress in Egypt, and God would save them again. And finally, he asks for favor with the king, that the king would look upon him and the request that he would bring with favor, with kindness, with mercy. Friends, this is a pattern worth saving and following For when we approach problems in this way, it aligns us with things that God has committed to. And then finally, we find that Nehemiah planned to ask the king for help. Now think about it. Why did Nehemiah need to ask the king for help? Why did he need a favor or favor with the king? Didn't he already have access because he was the king's cupbearer? Well, you have to remember that kings of this period of time reacted to their key servants in some strange ways at times. Remember Joseph back in Genesis? He met the king's cupbearer and the king's baker in prison because that king had exploded on them with great anger. And just one generation ago, Esther had risked her very life by approaching the king uninvited. Now this king is the son of that one. And the question was probably running through Nehemiah's mind. Would the same laws still be in effect? And if in an uninvited way he brought his request before the king, what would happen to him as well? Somebody in our Bible study group the other night 
shared this quote with me, and I had to research and find out where it came from, but it comes from a poet named Carl Wilson Baker. He said, courage is fear that has said its prayers. I like that. Fear that has said its prayers. And Nehemiah had prayed before he found the courage to go to the king. And when he did, the king noticed. We read about this in chapter 2. And Nehemiah asked for three things. First, he asked for time to go and rebuild the walls. And when the king said, how long do you need? He had a plan ready, and he began to unfold that plan before the king. Second, he asked for letters guaranteeing him safe passage on his travels. It was a long distance, some five to 600 miles, and there were different boundaries that he would have to cross. And third, he asked for a letter granting him access to the king's forests so that he could select some of the best timber in the world to bring back with him and to rebuild the gates of the city of Jerusalem. And when asked to help, the king even went one step further beyond what Nehemiah had asked. He sent along army officers and cavalry to make sure that Nehemiah would be escorted all the way to Jerusalem safely. Nehemiah asked the Lord to grant him favor with the king, and that's exactly what happened. So much so that King Xerxes went beyond the requests of Nehemiah to help him rebuild the city of Jerusalem. You see, those who are broken over injustices are often used by God to right the impossible wrongs of this world that God longs to set right anyway. And God often uses this pattern when we serve and pray and ask. I see this pattern in the way that the Lord answered our prayers here at North River when we were looking for land. We served as best we could with what we had, and we prayed for years as we looked at more than 40 different sites trying to find a place that would be a future home for North River and where we could continue to grow and expand. And we asked. And even when, when the answer was no, sometimes God had a different way of bringing about His will. I remember when we asked about this particular plot of land, we were told no, and we were told to stay away. In fact, we were simply told, you have champagne taste in a Diet Coke budget, leave us alone. But a few years later, Mark Dickinson, who was in my Bible study group at the time, asked again. He was playing in a golf game with Brian and Terry Tedeschi, two of the leaders of the Tedeschi Realty Firm. And they were talking about different parcels of land that they as developers were working on, and they got to this plot of land that we own now. And Mark asked, well, what are you going to do with that piece of land? And they said, well, we've decided that we're looking for a nonprofit to give, give to. There were some factors that had changed in the way that they were looking things with, at things with, with their business. And Mark stuck his nose in, and he asked one simple question. What about the church? What about North River? And because of that one question over a golf game, they decided that they would mostly give us this land. It was a partial donation, but what we paid for was far less than the appraised value of the land. That simple question, what about the church, turned everything around. About two years ago, I ran into Brian Tedeschi as uh, we were playing golf one day, and I got to thank him on behalf of you and all of us that are part of North River. And I told him that his decision had impacted literally hundreds and even thousands of people who have encountered the living God through the ministry of North River. And as we shared those thoughts and I began to thank him, his wife began to cry, and I saw Brian's eyes welling up as well. God does great things through surprising people. 
when we ask.